Good morning. I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of this chapter this morning. Last week we saw one example of how disunity can infect a church. And in chapter 4 we learned about the example of Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy. These two acted like they were a part of a unified body of believers who sacrificially gave away some of their excess in order to help others in need. They pretended to be like Barnabas, we saw, but in reality they were self-centered and self-protective. So today we read about another type of disunity, one that results from having groups that are the in-groups and those that are the out-groups, or at least not the in-groups. And the result can be favoritism, can be discrimination, etc. So I want to take a look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And let's stand as we recognize that this is the Lord's Word. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said what they said, pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord, or the word of God, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word today, help us to understand what we read. Help us to be encouraged by it, also to be challenged by it. I pray that you would help us to certainly listen to it, embrace it, treat it as authoritative this morning in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the issue in Acts 6 may not seem very glamorous. It's the issue of serving tables and making sure that everyone is fairly treated when it comes to some of the practical, physical needs of the church, like distribution of food. And yet, this is an area that is so important to the apostles. Really, what will become essentially the elders of that early church determined to appoint they did what amounts to the first deacons, seven men who were full of faith and the Holy Spirit who would oversee that task. And John Calvin once said, it is clear that love of neighbor is the most unmistakable evidence of our love for God, so it is essential that the church have a diaconal office and not leave this religious duty only to individual Christians or to civil authority. It's because deacons act as the, the leader 
hands of God by caring for the poor, by nursing the sick, by housing the homeless, ministering to the practical needs of Christ's bride, the church. And that is no less sacred a duty than the preaching or the teaching ministry of the word. Now the world doesn't think that serving is an important task. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato once wrote, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Well, unfortunately, too many people share that opinion. And for a lot, being served is more dignified than serving. Clearly, however, that's the opposite attitude than what Jesus possessed and what he requires of his people. For example, Philippians 2.7 speaks about the humility of Christ and how he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Paul tells us in that passage on Philippians 2 that we have to have that same attitude. We've been sent into the world. We've been told to imitate Christ. How can we do that if we don't have the willingness to serve one another and to prefer others above ourselves? In today's passage, we learn about discrimination between one type of church member and another. And sometimes that discrimination can go as high as from the leadership of the church. We learn in Galatians 2, for example, how the Apostle Peter had discriminated against the Gentile Christians. Apparently, as long as he was only with them as a group, he was fine. But when Jewish Christians and Gentiles were part of a mixed group, well, Peter ate only with the Jewish Christians. And if this kind of favoritism could occur with someone like Peter, might we not expect it to happen with any of us? Favoritism, discrimination, it all must be eliminated. And it must be addressed at the lowest, seemingly insignificant levels, just as much as at the highest levels. In Acts chapter 6, the widows of the Hellenists were being overlooked. They were being disfavored compared to the widows of the Hebrews who were receiving pro, uh, preferential treatment. And so what we have to understand about this situation, Hebrew refers to those of Jewish families who are from Israel and related areas. They are the ones that spoke Aramaic. They are the ones that had the Jewish culture. And Hellenist refers to those who lived in the countries west of Israel. Those were the ones, particularly in Asia Minor and in Egypt, who typically spoke Greek. Those were the Hellenized countries. To the Hebrew Jews, the Hellenist Jews were much different than Gentiles. They talked differently. They lived in countries that were heavily influenced by secular Greek culture. They dressed differently. They acted differently. And those are the reasons to be excluded from the distribution of food, right? No. But what was threatened was the very unity of the church. And we need to understand that. Anytime groups within the church are discriminated, discriminated against what results is disunity and bitterness and ultimately division. And if the best church of all time, the very first church led by the apostles of Jesus, which was witnessing God's blessings as we've seen and seeing growth daily, can suffer from the problems of hypocrisy as we saw last week and, and favoritism as we see this week, shouldn't we consider ourselves susceptible as well? But there's more here than just fixing favoritism, right? 
As we've experienced often within our own church, a few people can't accomplish all of the work and a few leaders can't administer everything. And so we look at verse 2 and read how the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And some folks, as they read this, they ask, well, aren't the apostles here treating serving, on ta serving tables a, a menial task beneath Beneath them, are they trying to get out of grunt work? Not at all, but we have to read their entire statement because they say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. It wasn't that the apostles thought that serving was beneath them, but that their time was already consumed with the preaching of the word and prayer and so they had no time left without giving up or taking away from that particular ministry. In other words, in the modern church, in elders' time at least, the time in which he is serving the body of Christ is best taken up by the ministry of the word and of prayer. But honestly, when an elder has additional time, it is great and a good example that he helps out with practical service. It does show that all work is valuable. There's no work that's lesser. But if there is to be a priority, if there must be a priority, if an elder is dedicating all of his time to the ministry of the word and prayer and has no time left, then what this is saying is that the ministry of the word, ministry of prayer cannot be neglected or minimized. So I hope you see we need to have a high view of work and serving and some of the practical needs. We also need to have a high view of the necessity of preaching and teaching and the power and necessity of prayer for the body of Christ. I remember a time when I was a young pastor about to preach at a funeral and one of the older established individuals of the church came up to me and said, are you going to keep this short? And then he said, just read the text, give us a few highlights. He was, he was coaching me on how to do the funeral. And I think sometimes that's a, that's a summary of the ministry of the word in a lot of people's minds, right? Just get up there, read the text, tell us a few good stories or illustrations and a few important practical tips and then send us on our way. Don't challenge us with any depth, please. Just tell me ways I can be a better person and fix my marriage and my parenting. And we need to realize that God's word is living and active. And yes, I understand that's not an excuse for me to drone on and on. But it is living and active, God's word. And it never returns void. And it always accomplishes its purpose. We are told that the word nourishes the soul. So don't you want to hear more of the word? We're told that it restrains evil, that it heals the brokenhearted, that it has the power to save, that it equips us for all righteousness. Jesus taught that his word would grow the kingdom. And Paul reminds us that God's word is sufficient to equip us with everything that we need to live a holy life. Albert Moeller wrote, the church is built and sustained by God's word and God's spirit only as the church faithfully preaches and teaches and listens 
to the scriptures and then pleads with God's spirit to bless their efforts, can they expect to see true conversion and true growth in godliness amongst God's people. The church is created by God's word. It is sustained by God's word. Indeed, without the word of God, a church ceases to be a church. I think that's a good statement. We have to make sure the ministry of the word is not neglected because the very disunity that is brought about, listen to this, the very disunity that's brought about by hypocrisy and by favoritism that we see in these passages of the past few weeks in Acts 4 through 6 is actually combated and reversed by the word of God bringing conviction. You see, what we need to see is that is the natural tendency of a church that's not well grounded in the word to slowly start deviating, not only from truth, but also into these very fleshly habits and behaviors that a church engages in. And it's the word that goes, no, it's the word that brings us back and puts us back on that straight path. And so respecting the need to prioritize, the apostles came up with a solution. They appointed more leaders. Verse 3 says that after calling together the congregation, they asked the people to pick out from among them seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom the elders would then appoint to the duty. And the term deacon doesn't appear in this passage. And in fact, Luke doesn't use the word at all. Where we find it is in Paul when he writes to churches throughout the world that are several decades removed from this first church. And apparently by the time that Paul wrote his letters, all of the churches had two offices that were elders and deacons. And so what we see having been established here in Acts chapter 6 has its full fruit in the establishment of the diaconal office. That term deacon comes from the Greek diakonos, which simply means a servant. And so the deacon as an office was a servant leader. The servant of servants and a model of what it means to meet the needs of others. And although the seven of Acts 6 are never directly referred to as deacons, it is clear that their practical ministry is one of that, exactly, practical service. In fact, the word at least diakoneo, the verb from which diakonos comes from, actually does appear in Acts 6 when it talks about the seven men who will be serving tables. That the apostles took the seven's ministry seriously is demonstrated by the fact that they laid hands on them. As a result of that appointment, the word of God increased. You see that? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So regardless of whether they're called deacons yet at this time, they certainly were prototypes of that position. And like I say, by AD 62, the office of deacon, a recognized position, has an official title in at least two churches established by Paul in Ephesus and Philippi. Now before we finish out of this section of Acts 6, I would like to look at the second passage that I signed for this morning, which was 1 Timothy 3. 
just six verses in 1 Timothy 3, where it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so as we, as we look at this, verse 8 says that a deacon must be dignified, which means that he must be respectable and honorable with a dignity that invites reverence. This trait corresponds well with the apostles' declaration in Acts 6 that they be of a good reputation. Furthermore, there's this close connection between being of good reputation and being full of wisdom. I think one is only worthy of respect to the degree that he actually reflects God's righteousness and wisdom. And that kind of person is honored as a godly man. Verse 8 also talks about the deacon not being double-tongued. Commentators differ a little bit over what that means exactly, but most think that it refers to saying one thing to one person and something else to another. And so a deacon must not be manipulative, insincere or deceitful. And put into positive terms, a, de a deacon, our deacons need to be men of integrity whose words prove to be truthful and sincere. You may be surprised to see that trait of not being addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain, but the bigger principle is that the deacons demonstrate self-control particularly in the areas of food and drink and money. These are the men who are, we recognize as not being given to excess in the worldly things, and they're good stewards of what they have to manage. Verse 9 continues with saying that they hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other letters, Paul uses the phrases mystery of God, Mystery of Christ, mystery of the gospel, mystery of his will, mystery of godliness, they're all referring to basically the same thing, which is the body of truth that makes up the gospel in the Christian faith. And so when the deacons hold to the truths of the gospel with a clear conscience, it means that they can say that they believe these truths and at the same time that they haven't violated their conscience by breaking them. They are not hypocritical. They are acting consistently. They are a man whose personal life is not at odds with their public profession. It's not possible to separate day-to-day -day living from the faith. And as Paul says in Romans 12, our true worship is to give ourselves daily as a sacrifice of worship. Well, the deacons modeled that for us. They show us what that means. And what we see from them is, is not only what we get, but it's also what reflects their private lives. Verse 10 says the deacons must first be tested. 
before they serve, and the result of the test is that they've proven blameless. Now, that may seem like an obvious requirement, but so many churches don't. Don't they hurriedly go to approve deacons out of felt necessity rather than really look through these requirements? We're then told that a deacon is a husband of one wife, and that wife is not a slanderer. She's dignified. She's sober-minded, faithful in all things. And this is, this is one of those areas, interestingly, in 1 Timothy 3, where some people go, well, you know, it's understandable that some of the qualifications for elders, particularly those regarding the ability to teach and so on, aren't expected, per se, of the deacons. But it's less obvious why, while both an elder and deacon are required to be a husband of one wife, only deacons are required to have godly wives. Of course, in principle, an elder needs to be above reproach, and that includes a godly marriage. But Paul finds it important to, to describe the wife of a deacon. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the reason is in the nature of the diaconate. Because deacons provide loving, practical service to the needy, they are often assisted by their wives. We know that to be true in our church. Our deacons have their wives by their side and are assisting in so many things. And one of the ideal traits of a godly woman and wife in Proverbs 31.20 is that she extends her hand to the poor, stretches out her hands to the needy, and that's really a lot of what deacons' wives are doing. They're not official deacons, but they assist their husbands in this very good work to the good of the church. And so it's important that they be dignified, that they be sober-minded, that they be faithful. Why, why also not be slanderers? In the Greek, that word refers to being a gossip, and deacons' wives often possess confidential information about the practical needs of families within the church. And while James already warns against the harm that gossip can do, Paul here elevates the need to actually test a deacon's wife to assure she doesn't have the reputation of being a gossip. And then last, verse 12 indicates that a deacon must manage his family well. A man may serve as a deacon if he does not have children, but if a deacon does have a family, it must be one that reflects Christian values and a well-managed household. And, and I think the, the reason why is probably obvious, that we have a deacon who is himself needing to be a model of what it means to be a leader, and proper leadership includes and expands to, to encompass the family as well personal life. So when God blesses the church with godly men of good reputation, who are full of wisdom, who meet these various criteria, the result is what we find in verses 5 through 7 of Acts chapter 6 in our passage. It says that what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose these men, and you see them listed here, and they were set before the apostles, and the apostles prayed over them. They laid their hands upon them. They ordained them, uh, appointed them to this office. And the word of God there says, continue to increase, and the number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem. It's fantastic what we see here. 
And I like also by reflection how we see the, the role of the apostle, which will become the role of the elder being seen here. We see a, a, the elder and the, and the congregation of, of members. There is this, this idea that the apostles were wise men. They discerned a problem. They provided a thoughtful, biblical, and productive solution. They were mindful of both the physical and spiritual needs of the body. They wanted to eliminate hypocrisy. They wanted to eliminate favoritism and discrimination. And so they were quick to address it. They were not power hungry. They didn't say, I need to have my hands in everything. They didn't say, I need to be the decision maker for every single process that takes place in the church. Rather, they wisely share their leadership with these seven men. And as a result, the word, the ministry of the word, what I like about this, remember how they said we need to not diminish the ministry of the word? Well, what happens? The ministry of the word actually increases as a result of this. It's made even more effective in sharing responsibility and discerning right priorities. The church actually produces even more fruit. And even I love how it says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I don't know if you've seen that before, but that jumps out at me that a lot of the priests converted to Christianity. And I think it's because what we see here in Acts chapter 5 and 6 is so countercultural to the world and even to the Jewish system as it was in the first century that it was evident that it was not of the world. It was not of men. It was of God. Hellenist widows being treated as Hebrew widows? Something as simple as eliminating favoritism and discrimination? Absolutely. And in this, I think we learn an important lesson for our own church. We must root out hypocrisy and favoritism. We cannot afford to have a falsely united church where people are consumed with the hypocrisy of having all the right answers without the vulnerability and honesty of admitting they don't, or at least that they aren't consistent with applying them to their own lives. That's what we talked about last week. And we can't be comfortable condemning other churches as is not being enlightened because after all we integrate everyone in to the same service you know adult and child we have this great fellowship and yet at the same time fail to be real about the fact that we are still a church of sinners who sometimes struggle with having in groups and out groups instead we must strive to be a place where everyone owns up to their weaknesses and to their sin. Hypocrisy and favoritism, what they do, they're related. They look only at the outside. Hypocrisy is the false image I convey. While favoritism is typically based upon discrimination of external characteristics, they feed each other because I convey this false image on the outside and everybody else accepts it and likes it. But we are all equally sinners. And the only favored ones are the ones to whom God has chosen to extend his grace. Because we're all hopelessly lost. I mean, that's, that's the great 
quality, isn't it? We are all hopelessly lost without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And beneath the surface of every personality, even the most popular guy and gal in this church is someone beneath that surface of whom is having a spiritual battle, raging. That can only be won with the help of the Holy Spirit and of the body of Christ. And I honestly believe that we want to be a part of that kind of church that is one of authentic community that has eliminated and deals regularly with hypocrisy and favoritism. I believe we yearn to have a family of brothers and sisters. Right? People who are hungry for God. And so I encourage us to be these things need to be that welcome place for weary families, weary individuals that come in through the doors on a Sunday morning. And they're not just coming through waiting to see how we're going to make them fit in. But we're willing to dive into their messy worlds and allow them into ours without making anyone feel marginalized. And the reason for that is because not only do we see in Acts chapter 6 and, and in the previous chapters this ruthless addressing of these things, but we can also see what the opposite looked like in Christ's time. Because a hypocritical, discriminating, marginalizing church was exactly what the Pharisees created. Do this, be like this, you'll be accepted, you'll please God. But we are the blood-bought children of God who have been given a new identity and an appetite for God that is stronger than these other things. It was the pharisaical teaching, values, and mindset that Jesus said made their followers twice children of hell and that it was because their followers believed that following their rules, fitting in with their system, being a part of the in-crowd, living life falsely, made them think that they were the saved people, the favored ones of God. But I've said this before. Remember that it is our weakness, not our competence, that moves others. It is our sorrows often, especially our conviction and contrition over sin, not our accomplishments, that break down barriers of shame fear that keep us apart. It is our admitted failures and our weaknesses, not our paraded successes that bind us together in hope. And to the extent that what we've learned in the past few weeks about hypocrisy or about favoritism describes our church, let us repent. Let us return our gaze to God and depend upon his spirit as we seek to be like Christ. I think what we see in the early church is, is how the Holy Spirit renewed and cleansed these natural sinful desires, behaviors, and appetites that we still struggle with today. We're no different than they were back then. But what, what begins to come out of these early chapters is I think what Ezekiel expresses, and he says, in those whom the Spirit works, 
they become careful to do the Lord's will. They become careful to notice when things are starting to veer away from what they should be. And they want to get back to the truth. They want to hear the word. They want to be reminded and encouraged and convicted. And we can't make that change by ourselves and do it by an act of our own will. And what we, why we can't do that is because while we can will a change in our behavior, we can't by an act of will change what we find attractive. Let me say that again. While we can will a change in behavior, we can't by an act of will change what we find attractive. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because he accomplishes what our willpower cannot because he reconstructs the affections of our heart. And we don't work to get God's approval. We recognize that only the Holy Spirit can actually turn us away from people. And when I talk about changing what we find attractive, I'm talking about what it is that is the most important things to us. Hypocrisy arises out of a need for affirmation, for approval by other people, for an unwillingness to show that we have a weakness, the desire to fit in with the right crowd. Favoritism comes as a natural result of those things. And pride fits in there. And what the Holy Spirit does is he changes those affections, changes us to be a people that are inclusive, he changes us to be a people that are vulnerable and transparent. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I struggle with these things. I'm not the, I'm not the cool guy, right? Or the cool gal. I'm just like you. And I especially is, as a pastor, giving counsel to people. I need to not be here yeah, tell me all your problems. Yeah, I'm perfect. Tell me all your problems. Yep, yep, I'm perfect. I need to be as real as everybody else. How do we do that? The Bible says we are to preach the gospel to our own hearts. We're to keep telling others and ourselves about God's holiness, his eternal love, his sacrifice, the victorious resurrection, the coming glory, our new identity in Christ, our sin, our tendency to have idols, and all of these things that will influence and affect the church, but our desire for something better, our mutual effort to walk alongside of one another and speak the truth because admonishment and so on, these, the, the critical feedback that comes in one another's lives is edifying. It is like the oil running down Aaron's beard. It is an anointing to us, the best kind of friend. And then the Spirit uses that gospel, that truth, that revelation of God's goodness and what he's done to change hearts. He does that to bring conviction and change and repentance. And that brings us back in full circle to our passage today. That's the ministry of the word. It's ministry of the word. People drowning in self-righteousness are not rescued by pretending to be something that they're not. 
They're rescued by the word. And it would be a, f a true failure for anyone who stands in this pulpit to think that all I need to do is tell you more about how you fit into the system by learning all the rules. It's about reminding you of the gospel. Even as you go home and remind yourself of it every day. So brothers and sisters, we are sinners bought with a price. We are sinners who must be grateful for the saving work of Christ on the cross. May we be a church that works to eliminate hypocrisy and favoritism and the large hosts of sins that seek to derail us from being a community of God that loves one another and is truly a family. May we be filled with a great love for one another and a true joy that is ultimately motivated by the great sacrifice of Christ for our sins. We are sinners who have been made saints. That is something to rejoice in together. Let's pray. Father, you are the gracious and good God who has saved us out of our sin. You've washed our garments. You've given us new clean garments. You have taken that name of condemned, dead, and you've replaced it with a new name. You've given us life. You've given us an inheritance. You prepare a place for us. All of these things that is true of every single one who is a child of God. Not the popular people, not the in people. Every holy sinner saved by grace is a member of your family. And so I pray that we would recognize that today. Help us as we have appointed men and within our own congregation to lead us in the area of service. Help us to give them honor. Help us to recognize the, the great service that they provide us in modeling for us what it means to champion the weak, the hungry, the impoverished, as they help lead us in recognizing hypocrisy, favoritism, and so many other things. Lord, help us to be a strong church, and may your glory go out into this community. In Jesus' name, amen.